0: You're listening to episode 54 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Josh Havens. And I'm Chris Lambert. And we're on a
1: journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the
0: everyday moments of life. Today we're talking with Dr. David DeGarmo. Dr. David DeGarmo has a desire to lead the church in authentic worship. He earned a Bachelor of Music from Evangel University and a Master of Divinity from Northern Baptist Theological Seminary. He also earned a Doctor of Ministry from the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, where his final project was on leading the Pentecostal worship service. In the past, he served as a lead pastor, a minister of music, and a worship leader. He's also an experienced educator and has served as a chief academic officer as well as the president of American Indian College. Currently, he serves as the provost of Global University. As disciples,
1: worship is an essential part of our life in Christ. It's more than singing songs or going to church. Worship is meant to be part of a lifestyle of discipleship as we follow Jesus in the everyday moments of life. And this is what we talked about in our first conversation with Dr. DeGarmo. But in this second episode, we explore how we can maintain that lifestyle, even in the midst of a global pandemic that changes the way the church meets together. Dr. DeGarmo, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Good to be here, Chris. Thanks.
1: Really excited to have you back. Talking about worship again, our first episode with you, we talked about worship and we got into some of the basics, but, um, you know, a lot has changed in the world in the last year since you've been on with us. And I was looking back over the podcast episodes. I can't believe it's been, uh, at least a year now. And so, um, but, but here we are. And so let's jump into a little bit more of, um, certain specifics because again, We are in a very weird time in the world. We've got COVID 19 as a pandemic, and church life and church culture has been thrown into chaos. And it has been uh, somewhat fun, not really, it's not fun, to watch this thing uh, play itself out. But. uh, and, yeah, that's right. Uh, we have lots of ministry friends that are trying to figure this thing out and scramble. And uh, yes, it's been. Luckily, though, I think most churches are starting to open back up and in, in some capacity. So uh, lots of waters to navigate through, though, as we uh, w- as we do this. Um, uh, let, let's start by talking about. I think the big issue, though, and it's one of the issues we hit on a little bit in our last conversation, but it's the topic that's on everybody's mind right now, and that's this idea of. Uh, the difference between corporate worship and individual worship. What's the difference between those things? And um, I guess really the question is, is can Christians worship individually if we're not gathered together as a
2: body of believers? Absolutely. In fact, you should be worshiping individually. Worship is not something that should be confined to a a once-a-week, twice-a-week thing that happens in a church building or with a gathering of other believers. Again, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to my definition of worship, which is that worship is the formational activity of God's kingdom people through which they glorify God and by which they experience in community, the kingdom of God through the Spirit's presence. Now, I use that definition a lot when we're talking about worship, because primarily when people talk about worship, they want to talk about what happens when we go to church. Okay, so, but the question you ask is about actually a larger question, that is, what happens when you're not going to church? And I would say that uh, your worship cycle needs to be daily. That, uh, now, it looks differently it sounds differently it's not the same thing as corporate worship in fact they shouldn't be the same thing as corporate worship i i read a blog the other day in which the author was was forcefully contending about this idea of that he had heard about worship leaders that would say well let's just forget it forget about those around you and concentrate on god and just worship the lord yourself that's exactly what you should not be doing during a church service, because we're there as a community and we're worshiping as a community. Now, when I'm home in my devotions place, I call it, my library in our fourth bedroom, and I'm sipping on my morning coffee, then worship is happening, but it's taking on an entirely different uh, uh, format.
1: Yeah. So how, how, do you, how do you think we got here where—because um, it is, like Josh and I have talked about this, it's a very prevalent problem that worship leaders do. They, they seem to routinely call us, especially at the end of the service, right, now just block everything out, focus in on God. How do you think we get here, though, when it seems—again, I love to ask these why questions because we get to a place where we're at the exact opposite of where we should be. How did we get there so that we can avoid, you know, or we can diagnose that problem and try to, uh, you know, crawl our way back maybe?
2: Right. Well, Chris, you know, I'm also into leadership and and that's an important part of my role. And one of the things I've learned as a leader is every time you fix one problem, you've probably created at least one more. So like email. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So every email uh, creates ten more. So uh, so what what is the problem? Well, that probably has a very innocent origin, and that is a worship leader or a pastor, or someone standing up front noticing that folks aren't paying attention, right? They've been distracted. Uh, maybe that parents worried about their children or or teenagers trying to get one another's attention or or uh, various other things that can be distracting in a worship service and the, the intent is okay let's let's settle in and let's try to eliminate the distractions as we worship and that's those are the words that get used. Let's forget about all those things around you when uh, actually no in fact, even the distractions are a part of our gathering, aren't they?
1: Ooh, yeah, that's yeah. good. That's Even good. the
2: active, active children, children and the and the the whispering uh, spouses, and all of those things are a part of our humanity as we gather in this worship space. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting, but I, I love that question. How did we get here? Normally, a very innocent thing started it.
0: Yeah, that's the way it always works. So a few years ago, Chris and I planted a house church, and one of the things that we really wanted to do was engage the entire family in the church process so whether it's singing together eating together worshipping together listening to a message together we do, we wanted to do all of that together um what we found though was a lot of the people who came through our doors um and and really to a, to an extent ourselves <laughs> weren't ready for something like that because we we still like fighting our kids to keep them quiet and keep them engaged um, was so draining. And then to be in a, a a private home setting where you're not actively like sitting in a, a service listening to somebody else, you're not really consuming in the same way. Um, it just it just made it really, really challenging. And so i I really like that you said that even those distractions are part of, worship, what we what we do as the church, um, for, for those who are, especially those who are stuck at home trying to watch services online, uh, how can we really embrace those distractions as part of our act of worship?
2: Yeah, and I think a, a lot of, at the root of that, some of the problem is that our culture and the way we've done worship for so long has trained us that Someone has the floor and the rest of us are an audience. Yeah. Um, so, and that the person who's, whether, whether they're speaking or singing, that it needs to go well. You know, there shouldn't be any interruptions. There shouldn't be any mistakes. It all ought to be very flawless in its production, if you will. So, so now, well, let's be quiet. We don't, inter- we don't want to interrupt. When in fact, wouldn't it, wouldn't a much more healthy thing be for a teacher to be more, more, let's have a dialogue, not a monologue Mm, so that (laughs) why not allow a children that, Oh, Oh, you know, that reminds me, I got something on my mind. Can I ask it now? Certainly we all know where that goes without guidance, uh, a quick diversion off into, you know, I want to talk about my doggy because I just got a new pet this week. And certainly that th- there will be some of that, but isn't that okay? Yeah. Isn't that what it means to be incarnational that our flesh is very much a part of worship as we worship in spirit and truth? And uh, that yeah, let's, let's do that. And let, let's, okay, Johnny, that was a great question, but let's come back and talk about the Lord and the, the song we were singing. Mm-hmm.
1: Or even to maybe split our services up to where there can be time for both, a little bit of a monologue that maybe is cut short and then time for discussion. And pastors can begin to intentionally weave in there gaps, so to speak, so that discussion can arise from what we've just talked about. And I I would love to
0: talk for like five minutes and then discussed and then another five minutes and then discussed
1: or that, yeah, that, that would be a cool way of, uh, of doing it as well.
2: Or what if we became real good storytellers so that, you know, have you ever read a good story to your kids or told a story to your kids and what happens if they're not, they're not distracted, they're locked in. Um, So there, there's a lot of learning from the communication side.
1: That's true. We had a a professor at CBC, uh, Dan Crabtree, who was, the master of the narrative style preaching and um, he would come into class and each class right you know a day or two or even over the weekend he could come in with no notes he would just walk in and he would say okay where were we all right and he would just turn around and start writing on the board and just pick up like almost like he finished the sentence that he stopped
0: with and the just last class pick period. right
1: up, and you were so engaged with, like, you know, he would be talking about, like, these battles from Alexander the Great, and you're just enamored there. I remember I took one of my uh, my uh Intro to Civ courses um, at, like, 2.30 in the afternoon, which, if you've ever been in college, at least at CBC, that was the dead time. Like, again, 7.30 and then 2.30. Everybody's asleep but everybody in uh, Dan Crabtree's class was on the edge of their seat because, again, he was so incredibly engaging in the way that he would tell his story. Um, but, but that does speak to a really cool uh, a point, this idea of story, right, is that the story we read in Scripture is the story of the people of God. And the rehearsing of that story was, in fact, worship.
2: Yes, absolutely. For the people. Yeah, and— <laughs> How easy it is for us to forget that the Bible, and I don't know what the percentage is, but the vast majority, the percentage of Scripture really is narrative. How much is didactic? Uh, Where where the author's teaching very little of it in the New Testament, right? Some of the New Testament epistles are pretty much where you're going to find the didactic stuff. And the rest of it is telling the story of God and his people and how they mess up and how God rescues them, how we sin and how God saves. Uh, all of that is very much, that's where we live.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit of a detriment to us Westerners who want that didactic teaching. Otherwise, we think it doesn't really exist, or we try to argue our way around it. Well, that, you know, it never really actually says that in there that we should do X, Y, and Z, even though there's maybe a pattern of worship or a pattern of a, a way of life that demonstrates that this is what maybe a life in the kingdom of God looks like. Um But worship is formative. The way we worship forms the way we live our lives. In fact, um, especially when it comes to singing and the songs we sing in the church, nothing communicates deeper theology or the theology that really sticks in our minds. How have you seen worship to be formative in your own life and then in the lives of the people that you have pastored and over the years?
2: I grew up in the church, literally. I grew up on a church. Church pew. My father, his father before him, were in the Pentecostal movement and as pastors, and I followed along in that in the, their their uh, awesome footsteps, really. And I would say that worship, the services of the church, probably are the most formative influence in my early life, at least. And I think that's important to remember because as we grow in the Lord, we need to learn to become self feeders, if you will. That that we don't need to be spoon fed everything. We don't need an outside force always interacting with us. Uh, but I would say, especially the music and uh, those the the hymns. You know, and that that I I lament the loss of the hymnal, uh, not necessarily the songbook. And I define them differently. Uh, <laughs> that that some of the great what we would call, what we've learned to call the great hymns of the church, those things that are not just decades, but hundreds of years old, that the musical substance to them, the lyrical substance to them have stood the test of time. And they get in our mind. They, they, they percolate. We sing them over and over again. We wake in the morning and that song is going over and over in our minds. Those are the things that form us. My father was a preacher, as I said. I could not tell you a single sermon he preached. But, I can, but the songs that we sang are there to this day.
1: Mm. So what's the difference between a hymnal and a songbook?
2: It's easy to write a song uh there are it's easy i should say to put lyrics to a tune okay and i would say a the hymn if you will the the great the those things the all Uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Amazing Grace. I would even put, there are probably some newer uh, songs that are in that that category. I would say that probably How Great is Our God is one that comes to to my mind that is a more recent one. That is, it says something substantive about God. It's, or to God. It's not a me-centered expression. And it does have a musical clarity to it. You know, there are just some tunes that don't make sense. They wander around. They don't follow the. There's a reason, and I'm a music major. There's a reason we studied music theory because the great composers probably weren't thinking about it as they were doing it. They just had an incense or incense, and it, uh, an internal sense of how these things work. Later on, we look at their work and we go, oh, look at that chord structure. We follow them what they knew intuitively. Uh, and if you break those laws, then it doesn't sound as good.
1: Yeah. Um, and that is the value, I think, of a good worship song worship leader is that they're able to—they've they, got big tasks to, to put together as far as writing and picking songs that are theologically correct as well as being— Good craftsmen in being able to make and choose the right kind of music because you 're right when you get the right kind of music and, and, and there isn't there is a place for the atmosphere of the church that we in the pentecostal cir- circles um, I think, downplay the role of liturgy in that way, that even the the shape of the building and and the lighting and and different things like that can play a significant role in in setting that mood. But um, it's the same thing that you're talking about here with the kind of music that we choose, right?
2: Absolutely. Uh, The tone. Is it casual? Is it formal? Uh, Is it modern? Is Is it eclectic? You know, all these sort of things. And I would say there's no right and wrong answer to these things. It's what works in your community? Now, that doesn't mean everything's just all subjective and everything's okay. But I think you need to put everything together and say, we want to tell the story of Jesus to our community, and we want worship to make sense. Primarily, worship is the expression of God's people to God. But, but we also want it to make sense to our culture, that we're not speaking some sort of a weird foreign language. And otherwise, we've we've lost the witness effect of it, because yeah. worship can also be a powerful, powerful witness. So um, but but yeah, it's 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 no simple, easy thing, and that's why there's a lot of dialogue, in fact, even arguing about it because we tend to want to have a final answer. Mm-hmm. Just just peruse Facebook and see how everybody weighs in. I've got the final solution. Well, guess what? As soon as he does that or she does that, then someone else has has a comment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which, oh, maybe that wasn't so final.
1: So a weird question as you're talking. I recently read a book by Andrew Peterson, who is a uh, Christian songwriter. And um, he showed me in his book a whole new world when it comes to songwriting and the Christian artist side of things that I hadn't really— seen or understood before. Um, all that's to say is, what kind of music do you enjoy then? Just casually, you're listening to Christian music. Are you listening to the, the quote-unquote worship music as genre, or what, how do your music tastes factor into, let's say, your lifestyle of worship?
2: Well, that's a, that's a great question, and I would say my musical tastes in general are fairly eclectic. Uh, and I think you'll see that people who have studied music in the past, they, they have a, hmm, I like, I like the classical period. You know, I, I like a little Beethoven, or I like a little Mozart, or or these kinds of things. But you also say, I also like a little jazz. Uh, so you'll see folks who, who study music for music's sake have an appreciation across the spectrum and can appreciate music. Now, but we generally have for lack of a better term, a music that speaks to our heart. And for me, uh, those, and and they're also a little dated. It's as you you are being formed, we remember the formative years. So those things that formed us tend to still be dear to our heart. So, you know, music between the 70s, 80s, 90s, in there as I'm being formed as a Christian and as a leader, as a pastor, those things, I have an affinity for them, you know. Date, date myself a little bit here. Something haywire went, ha- happened around 2000, but I, I, you know, that's just me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's when a lot of like the, uh, the 90s and early 2000s, you can put any of those like worship. I mean, they're so cliche in my head, right? It's just it, every altar call had to include some of these few songs. And to me, that was the formative worship. And so um, now it is funny because you look back on that stuff now and you're like, oh, wait a second. Uh, maybe there wasn't some great theology in those songs. Or they were just really shallow. <laughs> or they were just really shallow. And, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's okay to have those things be, play a formative role in your life. And yet you can then look back on them and say, oh, you know what? That was the milk at the time. I've moved on to, to meat now. And it doesn't have to discount any of the, uh, or the role that that formative experience played in your life.
2: Right. I was a big fan of the archers. you probably never heard of them. Back in the 70s, they, they, were, they were big, right? You know, they, they recorded a song called Little Flowers. The most, in my view, sorry, if you folks listening, if you disagree, one of the most vapid gospel songs of all creation, I think. But I loved that song at the time. It was a little ballad feel, you know, little flowers, never worry when they begin to grow. Very, very almost kind of uh, hippie-ish. You know uh but yet it, it songs like that, if nothing else, kept me interested in the Christ, Christian music genre, and for that, I'm a little grateful for that because I was listening to that rather than perhaps some of the secular counterparts that would have been a little even worse,
1: yeah, yeah <laughs> um, I want to go back to a point you made just a little bit ago about you grew up in the church and you've heard your father preach, you know who knows how many times, and yet you don't remember any of his sermons, you remember the songs. So the question has to be asked, have we put too much emphasis on the sermon portion of our worship services?
2: No. Just the fact that I don't remember them doesn't mean they weren't formative. Because I have a feeling that even though I can't recall a single sermon, yet the truth, the Word of God that was laid out there, as it was expounded, that was as it was illustrated, that that was laid out there. The, the, the scripture is never what the word of God is powerful. Isn't that what the word, you know, what the Bible itself says about itself? That doesn't mean it doesn't matter, but it means that line upon line, sermon upon sermon, you know, exposure upon exposure of the, the word of God, it does form us and fashion us, even if we don't recall the three points or the. You know, the poem at the end, all that sort of stuff. It definitely was making a difference. Mm -hmm.
1: In fact, I think you could make the argument that because of that, you're not going to remember the exact points, but to our pastors and preachers— it's a greater call to make sure that your sermons are actually guided and leading in a certain direction because really what, what matters at the end of the day is that end point. Like I think Andy Stanley has got uh, the best philosophy when it comes to communicating in this way, right? Is he's like, you know, number one, all good preaching has, has one point, not like five points or three points. I mean, you can break it down, but good sermons have one point that, that you can take away from. And, um, and so he he does a really good job of calling us into i think a story again the story that scripture tells the story of god and that's what i think good sermons do that's what good worship does is it is it calls us to participate in the story that we've inherited from um our ancestor real christians and in, in christ himself
2: you know on that point chris i think in fairness to preachers too is that my dad didn't preach he he preached a lot of different sermons that probably reiterated the same truths. Rather, but what, as we sang out of our hymnal, it had a finite number of songs,
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah. <laughs> and so those those tunes and lyrics got repeated and repeated. Had he only preached the same five uh, sermons in a single year, I probably would have remembered those. Probably not fondly.
1: Yeah, but you pro- might not have known as much about Scripture had that happened. That's true. Again, it, 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 that that was. I was gonna avoid this digression, but I think about like. Even my college experience in Bible college, I remember remembering I took a in, in my Pentateuch class our our professor gave us a study guide. I literally had every single thing on that study guide memorized, and I think I got like a ninety nine percent on that test. I missed like one thing, and I was kicking myself because in hindsight i I knew it now, after more than ten years, I can't tell you a single thing that was on that test, but that knowledge is still inside of me somewhere. I've just, it's assimilated and become more part of who I am. So I don't have to be able to tell you like, you know, basic rote facts about the Pentateuch, for instance. I can, you know, they're there. If you ask me a question, I could, I could call it up or regurgitate it. But I can't trace it back to say, oh, yeah, Professor Jenkins said this on this day. At that point, it doesn't matter.
2: It's become part of me. In fact, that's demonstration of, of, of high-level learning. Yeah, you internalized it. You now can't differentiate what you learned from what you know, mm-hmm. and I think that that's really important because learning, to me, learning and transformation are are nearly identical terms, if not pure synonyms. And that's what we're after in worship: is transformation, learning, if you will. And if we have a hard time differentiating when and how we learned it, but yet we're changed, that's that's pretty effective.
1: So this is a good point. Um, Another one of the things that we talk about when we talk about worship is it's in that place of worship. And again, here, when we say worship, we are, I am speaking directly to the song portion. Uh, But it's kind of one of those other things that it's like block out everybody, look only at yourself. Um, There's this idea that we learn about God in those moments of worship, or we learn about ourselves, or God meets us there. What are your thoughts on this idea that it's in that place of worship where we're really starting to experience God versus maybe other times we're experiencing God?
2: Wow, that's a a great question. I I would say that just going from my own, uh, observing my own life, and that there may be moments where something might crystallize. Oh, you know, there's that aha moment, maybe. But for me, the the worship moment, especially again, if you're talking about the singing, piece of it. That's where I'm experiencing God's imminence more than theological truth. You know, I'm, I'm engaging with theological truth in the Word of God, right? And, th- and that happens for me most effectively at this point in my life, outside the worship service. Um, uh, but, but by the same token, I would say that it's a package. You know, that those times of imminence may also be doing something theologically that I'm not cognitively aware of at that time. So, I'm not sure it's really helpful to put things into categories. You know, God works as God works when He's present and as we're listening.
1: So, how do you see, or what is the value of the worship, the communal worship service then, to you primarily? If that's not where most of that formation is happening
2: in your life now, what is this role in your life? I think it's the interpersonal connection for me. And I think that's probably true for a lot of folks, depending on your personality profile. I'm a very strong introvert. Um, So when I'm left to my own devices, I I will not be attracted to people. (laughs) <laughs> when i am tired when my resources are low when i've worked hard when i all those sort of things that have drained me i don't gravitate to people to be recharged that doesn't mean i don't like people it doesn't mean i don't love people it does certainly doesn't mean that i don't need people yeah. and that's what i need uh i need to be connected to the body of christ i need to have conversation i need to i need to I need to talk to someone else who's listening to me and i need to listen to someone who's speaking to me and i need to do that and i need to worship god together we sing in the choir my wife and i at at our church and that's very important to me uh that we make making music together uh builds me up it 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 refreshes me Mm.
1: so as an introvert do you find that you need to have, then, a day of rest on Saturday so that you're able to better engage on
2: Sunday? Uh, possibly. Uh, of course, in, in my life now, I'm I'm not a pastor like I was before, um, and so your rhythms are, are, are a little different. I'm finding now that I need a day of rest on Sunday because my work week now picks up on Monday. So, which is why, to be honest with you, I limit my church exposure on Sunday. Oh, yeah. I don't fill Sunday up in, anymore. I don't have to. I'm not the pastor. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and I would say remembering our pastors that, and those that are being formed for ministry, I would say, you need a Sabbath that's not Sunday. Mm-hmm. Whatever day that is. When I was a pastor, I did, it was Thursday for me. That was my, I needed to recharge on Thursday. Uh, so there's something about the rhythm of life to me that I work basically Monday through Friday. Saturday I tend to my, I'm still kind of working actually because I'm doing that stuff at home and attending to my family needs and I'm doing that fix that, that fix-it list at home and all that. And I still need I still need Sunday to be that day of rest. But I can incorporate that into into my church life now because I'm not quite frankly I'm not carrying a heavy ministry load.
1: Yeah, the reason I ask is because as you were saying that, I started to notice this in my own life. But I think I just put it together as you were talking, (laughs) in that when I, if I don't have at least some measure of rest and isolation, introversion time on a Saturday, I show up to Sunday church and I am not the guy you want to talk to. It's not again, it's not that I hate people. It's not that I don't like them. It's just that I'm, I'm just tired. I just need to be alone. And you know, we've worked all week and we done meetings and so you spend
0: all day saturday working at home and that's
1: right what are you gonna do i just need a moment i just need a moment
2: (laughs) sometimes for me actually working alone is is helps me recharge that's true too yeah Yeah. so
0: um so as an introvert um do you find it easier to engage when you're worshiping remotely or more difficult to engage or does that kind of depend on the situation in the week that you've had
2: it, it probably does, uh, and I would say on that interpersonal part, as we've been worshiping remotely, that hasn't fed that directly, but I'd also say that one of the things that surprised me as we've been like working, living, worshiping uh, remotely is how connected we still can be, even though we may not be sharing the same physical space. Uh, I have found Zoom meetings by the way, to be every bit, if not more draining than a, per, than a face-to-face meeting uh, with a lot of people, especially if you're chairing it or leading the meeting. So I would say that, that there, there is a power of, if we could just talk about that just a second, the good and bad of that remote thing is that technology, I think, I hope we're learning can be a double-edged sword. There's a great power to the, its connecting possibilities. You know that I can, I can even see the stain on, on that guy's shirt in the in the Zoom meeting. I wonder, you know, what he had for lunch. I, I mean, it's we can literally become acquainted with the screen interaction so well today that it's almost like being there. Um, so, and I think the same thing can happen in a worship experience that that it can connect us. And when we have been to stay at home orders and stuff, I think I'm very grateful for technology to be able to keep us connected to a degree. Uh, I would also say that the other edge of that sword is it at the same time has a power to isolate us, uh, that it can create an audio visual bubble for us. And I don't know, maybe this is one of these days where I was just getting inside my head a little too much. But I, but I thought, if they had church in the Hunger Games, what would it have looked like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, this technology, and it will get better and better at this, and more frightening and more frightening on that wrong edge, in, in my view. And that is that that we can be so manipulated through an audiovisual Sensory experience that we can actually think we're worshiping, but we're really what's masquerading as online worship is just a manipulation. And and I think one of the things that we need to guard against. And who knows, we may have to return to this someday. We don't. We're still in the middle of this story. We don't know how it ends just yet. And we might want to keep in mind that. Uh, i've I've surfed around a little bit and tasted and seen what folks are doing online and some of it's really good uh Some of it might be just a little too slick on the production side for my comfort. Because I thought, you know, I kind of want that rawness. I, I, I think I, I want to think that the true live stream is kind of what I want personally. And that is just the production quality may suffer a little bit. You know, the pastor may kick the microphone stand or, you know, somebody may be a little flat singing in that song. But that authenticity of it, I embrace that more than something that, that's well rehearsed and produced. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know- because we can go overboard with the, our technological use and, as you say, production, even when we're in the church.
2: <sighs> Absolutely.
1: Like, it, it again, it's, it, and I have no problem with lasers and lights and, you know, bass that's so deep it causes your heart to sync up with it. Like, all those things I think are perfectly fine, but if it becomes distracting to the worship, it, again, it becomes more about the production than it does become about you know, and then we're all just spectators. We become consumers of a product rather than participants. There's no leadership. There's no leading us into worship in that, in that situation. And so, yeah, I think there's, we are definitely even more in danger than I think of being led that way with, um, a remote or online worship service. How do you sift through then looking at different technologies like that? What is a wise use and what is an unwise use of technology, because if it's a double-edged sword, we have to be sh- careful that we wield it correctly.
2: So, when you're, when you're using in my view in this remote environment, you don't want to disregard production. I mean, you don't want to do a deliberately bad job of anything. So you want your production quality to be good, but what you want to do is you want to prioritize the connection piece of it, and that is that we're trying to connect the body of Christ. To one another and how and, and and one of the things that i think I, that i've experienced is that in in remote worship that i have experienced the presence of god in community as oddly as that sounds i believe the spirit helps us to do that the Spirit is not bound by time and space as we are, and that we can have that community experience, even though we might be in our own living rooms or basements while we're, while we're having that experience, that somehow the Holy Spirit empowers us to have that. Uh, God, God takes care of His people. He, does, he says, I am not leaving you alone. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit.
1: What are some of the characteristics of that connection? Like, how do you, how do you know? Is it is it certain feelings? Is it, a, or is it just literally a connection with? Uh uh, somebody you're talking to, like, how do you, how did you know that you were having that kind of a connection?
2: I, cause I believe, and I will, I normally, at least when I'm trying to be careful, like in a situation like this, I, I want to preface those things always by saying, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> because in, in the end, when we're talking about spiritual things, we're because of our limitations of language, we almost have to talk about things like senses or feelings or perhaps even intuitions because that's the limitations that we have with our particular language i do believe though as as christians the holy spirit if the holy spirit is resident within us and in us uh, that he does give us direction and we do we can perceive things in the spirit that are not emotions but yet we're left with emotional emotional words to describe them so i say i'm feeling something now i can feel an emotion like hate fear love excitement even an aha moment sometimes can be an emotion but there's and i think at this point in my pilgrimage i think i i think i've identified usually when that's the spirit at work
1: yeah not yet it's feeling using feel language is a little bit more visceral than saying i sense because again, then you can kind of be like, ooh, you said, you know, like, again, it's not as relatable. Um, but even like when the three of us have been in meetings here at Globe University, we u- we've we used that feel language when we're talking about things extremely logical. Yeah. Like we're trying to work our way through a systematic way of thinking about something and we say, hmm, I don't, I can't really articulate it, but my senses or I feel like my gut is telling me. And um, so, yeah, maybe, you know, it, it, I think it's a little bit more common than we think about it first but because we are feeling and sensing uh, uh beings and all that stuff kind of gets wrapped up into uh you know who we are and, and how we experience the world
0: i think it needs to be i think we need to look at this holistically um i mean daily growth discipleship were about the everyday moments of life and a holistic lifestyle of discipleship for me if if technology and whatever it happens to be is engaging my senses, my feelings, to the point where it's separated them or almost overwhelmed them to the point where I can't really think, Um, I'm just so caught up in the the emotions of the moment that my, my thinking, my reasoning capacities kind of disappear. I feel like that's the point where I've left behind a formative, experience, uh, because if my, and Paul kind of says this too, and, uh, yeah, first Corinthians where he says, if, if I'm, if my, if my mind's not engaged, then I'm not really edified. And so if, and you go back to the technology stuff, if the, if the lights and the base and the lasers are all such that it's just making me feel really good things, but my mind's not engaged in the process, I think at that point, we've left behind formative things. And even when we're like in meetings here at Global, we should have emotional experiences as we're trying to work through these things. I mean, what we're doing is really relational. We're working with people. We're helping to train them and, and uh, give them the education that they need to minister to others around the world. There's a, a very real emotional connection that needs to be there for those things. Uh, but if we leave that behind and we stop thinking, then we end up with some very bad outcomes where we make emotional decisions rather than logical decisions that are also uh, informed by our emotions. So I think I would just argue that we, we have to remember to look at worship and whatever it is holistically. It has to be part of our mind and, and our heart working together as, uh, as we express our, our gratitude, our uh, response to what God is doing in our lives. Absolutely.
2: And I, I believe that's at least part of the answer to what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth. I think there's that incarnational piece to it, which we don't often think of it, but our brain is an organ. <laughs> it's, it's a very weird way to think about it, you know, but it, it is. And so we are incarnated with a brain, uh, which which pro- I think is the thing that makes us... Uh, Unique and of all of God's creation, that our brain functions in such a way that it does make us who we are.
1: So we talked to a couple of weeks ago uh, a guy by the name of Jay Kim who wrote Analog Church. In fact, it's sitting behind you on the bookshelf over there. And I, we, we've talked about him uh, before in passing. One of the story again, as we as we talk about all this like worship and lasers and stuff like that, he tells the story at the beginning of the book um, about one of his friends who who is an electronic music DJ. So, like, he DJs all the, you know, like, you know, and the lights and the flashes and stuff like that. And he he got invited to go to somebody's church, and he walked in, and he, reflecting on that, told Jay. He goes, Jay, I do not feel like I'm cool enough to be here. (laughs) Because the worship service seemed like it was way overdone. And he was just like, where am I? What is this place? what am I doing here? I shouldn't be here. And, um, I think because, you know, like churches, they, they went from being like seen as like the boring stuffy stained glass again, no offense, hymnal holding places. Right. And we, we kind of went to the seeker sensitive side of things where we're like, you know, we got to make it awesome. And sort of, you know, incorporate all the cultural aspects that people love and, and give them that that'll bring them in. And, um, you know, to varying degrees, I think that was effective. Um, but, but it does seem to say that, and you mentioned it earlier, that worship can be a form of witness. How should our worship be different? How do you, we walk the line from being culturally relevant and culturally different enough so that we're actually witnessing to something appropriate in the world?
2: That's fascinating. Yeah, and that, that's a great story. You know, can, can worship be too cool? Uh, apparently so. Uh, And by the way, isn't Jesus and all the other, all the scriptural writers of scripture, aren't they pretty clear that if you're trying to outdo the world at the world's game, you're not going to win. In fact, you're playing the wrong game. Jesus said, go to the bank on this one. You will be hated by a few people. No, all. So if we're trying, if we're, if we're setting out to be cool to the world, then we've lost our anchor already. So the thing we want to be is relevant. And that's a whole different discussion than being cool because relevance makes a difference. You have to be different to make a difference. Don't you? Yeah. And now that doesn't mean we're supposed to be so uncool that we offset the coolness of the world. No, that's not what we're talking about at all. What we have to be is in our character, in our attitudes, in the way we relate to one another, in the way we, we, we speak to God, and perhaps pause and listen for God, the way we speak on behalf of God. All of those things are, are, are so important, and I think we need to recall that that's what we want to do. We want to do all those things authentically. It's not about being cool. It's not about whether I'm wearing the right branded jeans or anything like that if I'm on the stage. It's about, am I relating Jesus in a way that this person that I want to get the witness piece of it, that they can identify with?
1: Yeah, and um, as you're talking again you're basically giving the characteristics of the early church what really set them apart right is that they were willing to love each other in a way that the world wouldn't love each other they were able to help each other in a way that the church wouldn't help each other now that that expression the way that that's going to happen is going to change many many different times again we're talking uh, when we talk about worship, again, it's, it's so ingrained in our minds to think music, and, and we've, we covered that earlier in our, in our discussion. And so th- I think this part of it is so something so much bigger about how does our worship, the expressions of our lives as we live them in service to God, express themselves in the world around us. And, and, it, and it, as you're talking, it seems that it has to be done in a way that it, it calls the world to look at us for the characteristics of Christ that are different about us, not the style of jeans that we happen to be wearing. Right. And so, like, we're not going to get into this right now. We're getting ready to wrap it up. But I just because again, everything I, th- I think, even like the, our response to COVID, our the church's response to racial injustice in the world is all wrapped up in this idea of what is our worship look like as a witness. To god's kingdom because again if if we're thinking more about this being relevant like you're talking about in worship we're going to respond to these issues in a way that's going to make us quote cool because they're going to be they're the things that christians have always done they're the things that christ comes to do and call us out of our sin um they're the things that Christ came to do in our lives and call us out of our sin for.
2: Exactly. And, and I just want, man, I just want to affirm that so much. And we live in a world that, for one, is trying to outcool each other, right? So um, we shouldn't be in that game. Uh, but here's the thing the world in which we live, we are, Chris, citizens of overlapping kingdoms right now. The kingdoms of this world are passing away. They have a shelf life but the kingdom of god that has come in part uh, that's that's where it really matters and that's what jesus back he was talking about worship at the woman of the well when he says i who am speaking to you am he there's a time coming when it's not going to be about this mountain or that mountain it's not going to be about this denomination that denomination it's not going to be about liberal or conservative it's not going to be about any this race or that race its none of those discussions are going to be in play it's going to be god is seeking people who can worship him in spirit and in truth that's i think the greater heartbreak um the 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 heartbreak i should say that god is feeling right now is probably over that because that's what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. His heartbeat was, Father, that they may be one, even as we are one. This world is divided. And I think I'm on pretty solid ground when I say, so is the church right now, that the church uh, has taken sides on a lot of issues for Perhaps right reasons, wrong reasons. I don't know. That's another discussion. But I think we must admit that the church is divided along some of these uh, racial, political lines, and and that's to that's to our detriment. You know. And I think if you want to bring a lament before God, uh, that possibly is one of those. That God, we are broken right now. Our church is divided, and. That's not how you created us to be. That's not how we're going to remain. I feel good about the future of the church because Jesus is building it. So God, will you help us in our worship, in our dialogue with one another, in our Facebook posts, in our whatever the case. Will you bring us together? Not in some sort of a, a mediocre medium, but will you tune us through the Spirit to the mind of Christ and, and unite us in the gospel? Uh, under the name of Jesus Christ.
1: Normally, my final question to guests are, where can people go to find out more about them and, and do follow-up stuff? Um, last time on the show, you just said, go to Globe University's website and get connected to them. Is that
2: still where they should go? Sure, absolutely. But but I do, certainly would encourage folks to contact us more directly. We actually are missionaries, and so we do have a Facebook page. So, uh, facebook.com slash drdgarmo which is convenient because it could stand for Dr. DeGarmo or it also could stand for David and Ruth DeGarmo, which is my wife's name. So either one of those works. So drdgarmo, facebook.com slash drdgarmo. We do have a Facebook page or drdegarmo.org drdgarmo, We have a website too. So, so visit that and you can communicate with us through that
1: great and we will have links to everything in the show notes as always so you guys can go down there click on it and get into contact with dr garmo thank you so much for being on the podcast with us again today this has been great always love talking to you worship it's a powerful part of what we as christians should be doing and we need to learn how to do it a whole lot better so that we can uh you know continue to be made into his image so
2: it's always a pleasure chris thanks thank you.
0: God is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In times like these, we can get so caught up in trying to figure out the right way to worship, when really, we miss the simple truth of what worship is. It's a formational act of God's people, where we glorify God and experience His kingdom by the Spirit's work among us. That means it can happen whether you're worshiping alone or in a community, and each of these settings will be different. So I want to challenge you to find times to worship this week in multiple ways. Today when you're alone in your car, thank God for the things that He's given you this week and worship Him. The next time you're with a group of people, spend time actually engaged with the community around you and encourage others to join in the group worship activity. Then together, enjoy the Spirit's work in your local community of believers. The true calling of the people of God is to find times to worship God in spirit and in truth even when the methods and settings change. How can you create a lifestyle of
1: discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that.
0: listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship podcast. To find out more about David's work, check out drdegarmo.org. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.